Hello, I'm Julia Child. Welcome to the French Chef. I think she is one of the most beloved women of the 20th century, and I rank her up there with Eleanor Roosevelt, Oprah Winfrey, Jackie uh, Kennedy. I think that she is one of the four most famous women of all time. Hello everyone, I'm Marion Kane, food sleuth. I first met Julia Child by phone in early 1991 while I was researching a story on what famous foodies would serve at a dinner party. I asked her if she'd ever been to Toronto and she said, nobody's invited me. I quickly arranged for her to come to Toronto for a whirlwind one day visit as a guest of my newspaper, the Toronto Star. From then on, we kept in touch until her death in 2004. She became a dear friend and a beloved mentor. A couple of weeks before she died, I received a touching missive from Julia. Two recipes for tart tatin, a dessert I was researching, clipped from local newspapers in Santa Barbara where she was living. This August 15th would have been Julia Child's 100th birthday and there's a buzz about it in the food world. The Smithsonian is reopening their food exhibit and Julia Child's kitchen is front and center. There's a new biography by Bob Spitz, biographer for pop legends Bob Dylan and the Beatles. There's even a JC100 Twitter feed. All of this hot on the heels of Julie and Julia, starring Meryl Streep, the movie that brought Julia Child to a whole new generation of fans. So just who was Julia Child? And what made her such an icon and so beloved by generations of cooks and chefs? I talked with several people who were close to Julia to find out. There's biographer Bob Spitz, her journalist grandnephew Alex Prudhomme, who co-wrote Julia's memoir, My Life in France. I also speak with Julia's longtime friend and editor, Judith Jones, who discovered Julia by publishing her iconic first book, mastering the art of French cooking, and who worked with her throughout her career. This is the first part of my Bon Appetit series, celebrating the life and legacy of Julia Child. Warning, during the course of this documentary, I and others may channel Julia's inimitable voice. Julia Child was born Julia McWilliams in Pasadena, California, on August 15, 1912. She graduated from Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1934 and thought it would be fun to be a spy when she joined the Office of Strategic Services. What she became was a lowly filing clerk who at least got to travel to places like Ceylon and China. It was in China that she met her husband Paul Child, who was 10 years older and working for the U.S. Information Service. Well, I mean, it was a remarkable relationship. It's one of those ones that you have to treasure all your life. But really, because of Paul, we have Julia Child. She didn't just get his name. That's Bob Spitz, whose new biography, Deary, about Julia Child, has just been published by Knopf. I met with him in the lobby of a Manhattan hotel. He literally created her. When he met her, Julia was suffering uh, from what she called being a social butterfly. She was, uh, let's see, when he met her, she was in her early 30s. 
Um, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Late 30s. She had no future. She didn't know what she was going to do with herself. She had graduated from Smith College, um, a C student. Um, with n She had ambition, but she couldn't quite put anything together. Um, so even as late as the war where she met Paul, she was working in the registry, but he formed her. He made her read the great books. He made her discuss with him every day the, the events of the day, the great political things that were going on. Paul was an incredibly sophisticated and erudite man. And Julia, throughout her writing, which I saw often, always said she felt so below Paul, but she was struggling to keep up with him, and she loved it. She loved what she was becoming. And Paul was fashioning her into the woman that she eventually became. He gave her the license to be herself, to explore, to be independent. Julia wasn't sure about her direction or purpose well into her 30s, but she found her calling her first day on French soil. Julia is driven to Paris by Paul in their big American car, and along the way they stop in Rouen. That's Alex Prudhomme, Julia's grandnephew, who co-wrote Julia's memoir, My Life in France, with her. He tells a story of the turning point in her life. They have lunch at La Couronne, which means the crown, which is the oldest restaurant in France, still there. And they had this epiphany, or Julia had an epiphany. Paul had been there, had lived in France from in the 1920s, and it was his favorite place, and Paris was his favorite city, and he couldn't wait to show Julia France and its food. And in Rouen, at La Couronne, they had a lunch of saumonière, and it changed Julia's life. She said, this was the meal that changed my life, and she felt an opening of the soul. She said, I felt like I was opening like a flower. And she was in her late 30s at this point, um, and she really felt that from that first meal, she had discovered her raison d'être. She attended the Cordon Bleu in Paris and left no stone unturned in her pursuit of culinary technique. The seed was sown for what would become a masterpiece in the world of cookbooks. After bouncing around a few publishing houses, it found a champion in editor Judith Jones at Knopf. I met with Judith this spring at her apartment in New York. Could you tell me the story behind the, your involvement with Julia Child? Well, she was the one really that got me started. It was, she's often said to me, Judith, you and I were born at the right time. <laughs> and we were. And she acted upon it, and so did I in a different way. But when, I, when that uh, manuscript, big tome, landed on my desk, it was kind of an answer to a prayer because I had I had been looking for just such a book. Just quickly, what manuscript was that and what year was it? It was Mastering the Art of French Cooking. That's what we eventually called the book. She wrote it with two French women, but it, she did most of the writing and the research and the thinking, which is what made it unique. Yeah. What year and was it? And it was uh, 1960. Mm -hmm. So, long time ago. A long time, and amazingly, this this past year, more than a year now, the movie Julie and Julia came out, and we have just sold Mastering the Art again, in droves, 
and it's young people. They see that movie and they want to be like Julia. Julie! I mean, <laughs> they want to be like Julia, not Julie. Were you in that movie? Yes, I was. I was, uh, I was portrayed as a young editor and... Interestingly enough, we we published it in the fall. I think it was '61, and uh, before even that first fall, we did print ten thousand copies, and we went back for a second printing of ten thousand. Mm -hmm. So, in a very quiet way, it had already made quite an impact. And then, of course, the next spring, Julia got on television. It was a little literary program in Cambridge called What I've Been Reading, I think. Mm -hmm. And Julia said, well, if I'm going to be on that, I have to take a little burner along and an omelet pan and do something. <laughs> I guess they were quite astounded when they saw this omelet pan and the Bunsen burner. And so she whipped up the omelet, and it was, they oohed on, and it was delicious. And WGBH got more mail on that program than they'd ever gotten, saying... Get that woman back on television. <laughs> so she was the original TV celebrity chef. She really was, yeah. Boeuf bourguignon. French beef stew in red wine. We're going to serve it with braised onions and mushrooms and a wine dark sauce. It's a perfectly delicious dish. Biographer Bob Spitz. I said she, she oozed charisma. She... Um, she she went on TV just being this natural older woman from Pasadena with a funny voice. She had no idea of the impact that she would have on an audience. She just wanted to be herself, but herself is what everybody wanted. A very natural person, someone who looked you in the eye, who could laugh at herself, who could also teach. Julia was a remarkable teacher. Um, and I think that is her number one quality. And I think she would have said that more than anything, what she strived for all her life was to be a teacher. So when she appeared on TV, people saw the whole package. They saw someone who was very sincere, someone who was self-deprecating, uh, someone who was a natural, who wasn't trying to be anything that she, she wasn't. And that just clicked. That was perfect for the time. What do you think her appeal was to professional chefs and home cooks? Well, I mean, uh, um, professional chefs and home cooks knew right away that Julia was promoting food like Americans had never eaten before. In, in the no early 1960s, um, we were at a time when convenience food was all the rage. Swanson had introduced the uh, TV dinner in 1952, but TV dinners, because television came into its own in the 60s, um, made that popular. You know, people were cooking casseroles. Um, beef stroganoff was the fanciest dish being done at parties, at, at you know, middle-class parties. And, you know, jello molds. And, and Julia made everybody realize that there was this vast menu of food that they could cook easily in their home, and she gave them the confidence to do it. So that was her appeal to the home cook. To the um, professional cooks, uh, it was a time in our culture when professional cooks really had 
no status. The people who had status at that point were the owners of the restaurant. The owners were the front people in the dining rooms, and you always said, or the maitre d's, and you always knew them by name, but nobody, nobody knew the chefs. Uh, they were the technical men in the back, and that was the trade profession, um, not really a craft. And Julia changed all that. She brought that great food to the forefront in, in our culture, and um, things changed very rapidly after that. So people, the professional chefs, I think, owe her a great debt. I think that her, her real legacy is that she awakened particularly women and then men have followed, but to the pleasures of cooking. And uh, I don't think we'll ever go back on that again. Because part of, and in doing so, she kind of lifted that veil of uh, Puritanism. And as I said, then you had that beautiful physical relationship with food. And I don't think you can take that back. Alex Prudhomme. Well, of course, her humor is something that people always turn to. Um, she had a very distinctive way of speaking. Uh, she chose unusual words. Um, she would never say, I just put the bowl on the table. She'd say, I plopped it down, you know. And it was very, uh, a very visual language that she used and very evocative of, uh, or very sensory even. Um, she loved, of course, butter and she would talk about massaging the chicken with butter and she said oh it made him feel good you know <laughs> and people had never seen this before but beneath that humor um i always like to emphasize that julia was very very serious about what she did um, and there was this misconception for a while that she was sort of this tall slightly goofy, out of control, perhaps drunk woman uh, performing on television. And it became a kind of a clownish caricature that I really dislike and was actually not true at all. Um, she just made things look easy because she had worked so hard on her technique and on her history and she really knew this stuff. And when I was helping her write her memoir, she told me that she would, in preparing her recipes, she would test them 10 or 12 times each to make sure that she had made every possible mistake that her readers might make. And, and then she would include in the recipe ways to correct that. And so I think this combination of tremendous uh, natural gift for humor combined with uh, complete dedication to her craft and um, very hard work for many years, uh, that allowed her to be relaxed on television or in front of a thousand people in an auditorium and to exude that great charisma. Julia had a tremendous way with people. She never lost her curiosity and ability to connect with those around her. That was uh, especially on display when you were at a restaurant and Julia would always want to go back into the kitchen after the meal and talk to everyone there. And everyone from the from the head chef all the way down to the dishwasher. and. Generally, she knew the backstory of the head chef, and she was always, you know, very inquisitive about him. But she would work her way down through the, the fish guy and the pastry woman and the salad maker, all the way down to the dishwasher. And generally, she was most interested in the dishwasher because he probably came from Pakistan or from Mexico or somewhere, and she didn't know his story. And she was genuinely one of the most curious people I've ever met, and she 
you know, she would treat everyone with the same uh, respect, the same tone. You know, she would talk to the president of the United States and literally a bum on the street corner in the same way. And her favorite mode of operation was to fire questions at people. And she just loved that dialogue back and forth. Even after she was famous, Julia Child lived like an ordinary person. Bob Spitz. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Julia's number was always listed in the phone book, and she answered her own phone. Uh, And the interesting thing was, if you had a problem with any recipe, you could just pick up the phone and call Julia Child, and she would tell you how to fix it. Uh, And people who had Thanksgiving dinner with her and Paul always said that the phones would start to ring at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and they wouldn't stop ringing until like 8 o'clock at the night. And, and everybody would just call, Julia, what do I do with this turkey? The turkey's getting cold. And she'd say, oh, dearie, you just put that old turkey right up there on the counter. Nobody ever heard of eating warm turkey anyway. She would correct recipes. She answered her own phone. She was accessible to everybody. Bob Spitz had the chance to travel with Julia in Italy under somewhat unusual circumstances. You know, I'll tell you, it's it's a funny story and it's strange. I was in Italy writing articles for a number of magazines and I got a call from the Italian tourist board and they said, we know you're over there working. Would you mind being an escort for a woman? And I said, I don't do that kind of work. Um, At which point they said, it's Julia Child. And I said, I'll be there in five minutes. Julia needed, she, she was 82 at the time. Uh, Julie was traveling around Sicily, and she needed an arm uh, for somebody to just hold on to. In addition to that, Julia wanted a much younger male arm. Julia loved young men, loved them, loved having them around. She called them boys. She would always say, oh, do we have boys tonight? I hung out with Julia Child in Toronto on several occasions during the 1990s and got to know her well. She was lots of fun. There was this one occasion in 1991 when she came to Toronto for a day as a guest of my newspaper, The Toronto Star. We had done a book signing at the cookbook store. There had been a lavish lunch at the Four Seasons and a demo she did at George Brown College for a large audience. It was about 10 p.m. and we had returned to the Four Seasons Hotel where we were both staying, she in the penthouse and I on a lower floor. She told me she was hungry and we adjourned to the lobby bar and a matronly woman came to serve us who didn't recognize Julia. Julia placed her order. I'll have a hamburger, medium rare, and a martini on the rocks in a large wine glass with a twist. The food arrived, so did the drink. I could see Julia was struggling with a knife and fork to cut the really overdone meat. I said to her nervously, So Julia, how's the hamburger? It's edible, she said. How about the drink, I said even more nervously. Perfect. I wrote about this the next day in the newspaper, and I heard later that heads rolled in the kitchen. Don't look back, look forward, she would always say. Julia had a life-affirming spirit that was contagious. This August 15th, people across North America 
will be celebrating her 100th birthday and sharing their favorite memories of Julia Child. Perhaps discussing which recipe or book is their favorite? Many will be planning a special menu. What would Julia suggest? Well, we used to play a game, which was to decide what your last meal would be if you were on death row. <laughs> this was one of Julia's favorite parlor games. And she had a, several menus, as I recall. But generally, they would start with champagne and oysters. And then it would move on to duck or that original saumonier. She didn't like duck l'orange, but she did like uh, a roasted duck breast. She was also a terrific red meat eater. I remember not too long before her death, uh, eating with her in Santa Barbara and having her just love a, a lamb chop to the point where she sort of furtively looked around the restaurant to see if anybody was watching, then picked it up with her fingers and chomped into it. <laughs> she was a real carnivore. And then she would move on to a, a salad vert with a sort of an acidic vinaigrette and maybe um, uh, some lovely French bread with really great butter and a dessert, uh, a rich chocolate dessert, maybe a renda saba cake. I'll be cooking a dinner for my collaborators on this project in her honor, featuring some of Julia's favorite dishes and a bottle of Pinot Noir, one of her favorite wines. As Julia liked to say, bon appétit. Thank you for listening. This is the first episode in my Bon Appetit series, celebrating the life and legacy of Julia Child. Look forward to future episodes, starting with one featuring star chefs Jamie Kennedy, Mark McEwen, and others, discussing a meal they prepared for Julia when she came to Toronto. You can also find extended versions of interviews with Judith Jones, Bob Spitz, Alex Prudhomme, Jamie Kennedy, and others on my website, marionkane.com. That's M-A-R-I-O-N-K-A-N-E dot com. This is Julia Child. Welcome to the French Chef, and see you next time. Bon appétit.